0: me and dine me when I was your girl promised if I'd be your wife you'd show me the world but all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill I'm tearing down your brooder house cause now I've got the pill Hello, and welcome back to to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we are continuing through our series, 20th Century Girls. Uh, We are opening up the second volume of the Library of America's collection of Mary McCarthy's fiction writings. Um, I'm thinking that there's a nice volume a third volume of her nonfiction writing coming at some point. Let's hope it does, because Mary McCarthy's great. She's wonderful, and I'm having a lot of fun jumping into her. I'm so glad I I discovered her. Uh, you know, actually, it was kind of a random thing, because I, I resubscribed temporarily for the Library of America last year, and when I got back to America this summer, there was eight volumes waiting for me. Two of them were Mary McCarthy's. Um, there's some other stuff too. In fact, one we're going to be looking at shortly. Maybe after this, maybe in a little while, will be Jane Bowles. Uh, a really interesting um, volume as well. Uh, similar period of time as Mary McCarthy, actually. So maybe it'll be good to look at them together. But anyways, in this episode, we'll be beginning our look at The Group. This The Group was published in 1963. Um, so far, it's the longest novel by Mary McCarthy. We are going to be looking at I think it's the longest of any of her fiction books. A very, very important work, a very, very fairly well-known book. It was adapted into a movie in 1966, a movie I have not seen, but I may uh, check it out. I haven't been very diligent in looking at the adaptations of the various works I have reviewed in this podcast, but there's always a chance that I'll have the time and energy and interest in in doing some kind of movie reviews. Uh, We'll see um, about that. Uh, I think it's it's possible, and this, this one looks like something that might be worth checking out. So what to say about the group for introduction? Well, this is a classic text in Second Wave Feminism, and I've never heard of it before, but doing a little bit of background reading in it, I, I found it, in fact, was a very inspiring work, more so than any of Mary McCarthy's works we looked at before. This is a feminist work. This is rooted deeply in the issues that Second Wave Feminism was Dealing with, you know, she kind of danced around some of these issues before about identity, about how women in the in the post World War II environment kind of found their place, uh, how you know how they were being pressured by social socialization of, of kind of the bourgeois class, uh, yet while being radicals and and progressive liberals in, in other ways, uh, she. You know, that was all in her other works, but it wasn't as stated as explicitly. And she didn't go so systematically through the issues that women were facing. And I think that's what makes the group such a really, really powerful work. It's it's very political, though. And that may be off-putting for some people. But my feeling reading this is that if you ever run into someone who says, well, first-wave feminism had its role, like women needed political equality, they needed the right to vote, but those second-wave feminists, those bra-burning 1960s feminists, you know, they were going too far, right? Or or that was not, like they somehow were betraying what feminism is really about. That they went beyond the fight for political equality and started, you know, becoming what you all see on, online called feminazis or, or, or some grotesque term like that. Anyone who is who kind of comes up with you with that conservative argument, that there was a place for... You know that first wave feminism but not the second wave feminist. And, and this can come from people maybe um, you know who may be even supportive of third world feminism, right? Where where women still in some parts of the world don't have political rights, don't have basic equality to choose marriage and things like that, choose who they marry. You know, to, to say that there's something kind of bougie about second wave feminism. I, I would say to those critics of, of that version of feminism and and you know, the feminism that's continued today, that's building off second wave feminism, I'm still trying to address some of these issues, has to read this novel, or at least has to be told about the issues that this novel's dealing with. Because these are women who are educated. These are women who have jobs. These are women who who have the choice of marrying who they want, who have a degree of sexual freedom. But they're still pressured by so many things uh, that the institution of marriage is still very patriarchal. We've seen that before, in like novels like A Charmed Life and the company she keeps where there's something kind of in some cases, it's something more psychological, something lacking, some kind of feeling that there's a disconnect between a very traditional life, a married life, and and kind of the education and the careerism that, that these women have earned. That's, you know, that's there. We have issues here, birth control, issues of, of women being just violently repressed by husbands, women being institutionalized without their consent. We have women who who are being scorned for for their sexual freedom. We have women facing all sorts of of social challenges that weren't obviously being dealt with by by the victories of of first wave feminism, the suffragist movement and and things like that. And then there was achievement there to be sure. Women got full rights to property. They had much more marital freedom, much more of course, some degree of political equality, right? But the complaint, as I understand it, of second wave feminism essentially, is that we need to extend those fights to the social. We need to to the social institutions that, that exist. Education, the workplace. The workplace is a big one here, actually. Um, these women have all, pretty much all of them have jobs, but several of them face challenges in their jobs in that they're not really respected and treated as as equals and intellectual equals, despite their education, despite their brilliance in some cases, they're just sort of um, cast aside. Like the pressures of like caring for parents who might have health or mental health problems, the pressures of just raising a kid, these things are, are all packed into this novel. And, and it, it is a much more political work than anything we've read before. Um, It carries on some themes, like the socialism stuff that she's dealt with, like the radical women uh, facing a a fairly patriarchal, radical culture in America. We certainly saw that in in The Company She Keeps with uh, the portrait of an artist as a Yale man. Here, I think this actually does a better job of it. Uh, Now, this novel was written in 1963, but it's not set in 1963. It's set in 1933. So it's it's set kind of between, right smack dab in the middle between first and second wave feminism, right? Um, so these are women who benefited from those gains of, of the suffragists, but they're, they're foreshadowing the, the issues that women in the 60s are going to you know, demand attention to, such as access to birth control, sexual freedom, uh, such as uh, equality on the job, Uh, All these different social issues, the institutional issues that were on the backdrop of second wave feminism and still, I think, not fully addressed and still something that that feminists talk about and think about and and critique. I I know there is kind of a third wave feminism that has some new issues that are not addressed in this book, but this book is very complete. It even has issues of of lesbianism, of of the right to be asexual in 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 a culture that's seen the liberated sexualized woman as, as kind of a, um, I say like a, a target for the male gaze right like you know sexual liberty for women was a good thing for women but men some men saw that as just or some men used that as an excuse to treat women more or less as you know sexual conquests right we see evidence of that in this novel as well really really important work in all these ways and I, I think the most relevant of of her works maybe for today and and I just think at the end of the day this is a novel that people should read if they want an introduction to what second wave feminism was about and why it was necessary and why the cliche of like the bra burning uh, kind of uh, radical woman It's, it's not entirely fair that these were real life struggles and none of these women are particularly political in Feminist politics. None of these women are feminists in the sense that they're out there carrying signs or involved in feminist movements. Some are very political. Some are involved in the left, but they're still in this kind of class struggle era of the 1930s. So I think it's interesting she sets in the 30s. She could have set it in the 60s. She set other of her novels contemporary, but she went back to the setting of the company she keeps, and and I think that is is interesting. I think it's she's suggesting that women have been dealing with this for 30 years. A whole generation of women have been facing these struggles and that it's not just a new thing. It's not a new, uh, just, it's not just women in this, it's not just the boomers who suddenly woke up and said, we want, you know, this, that, or, or, or whatever. That this is something that has been building up for a long time. Um, and I, I think taking that generation, that 1930s generation, you know, I guess, is this the greatest generation or the silent generation? Um, I've, I'm sexually struck by As much uh, importance has been given to the boomers for the 60s. You know, remember, boomers were quite young in the 60s generation. So, yeah, they were a part of the counterculture. They were certainly the campus uprisings, certainly a lot of the the anti-Vietnam War movement that was led by that boomer generation. But so much of the leadership for the civil rights movement, for the new left, for the early gay liberation movement. That's like the silent generation and the greatest generation played a much bigger role in the leadership of those. Of those movements. So um, I think by setting it with her generation, I mean that's what Mary McCarthy does here, it's setting it with her generation, right? She graduated, you know, let me double check, we'll check, actually I think she graduated in 1933, so she graduated the same year that the characters in the, in the group graduated. So let me talk a bit about the structure of the novel, the group. Um, it's 15 chapters, it follows the story of eight women um, and these eight women are the group. They were basically buddies at Vassar College, and they all graduated in 1933. And it's it's a novel, it's kind of like an Arabian tales kind of structure uh, where you have some bookend events. It's a wedding and a funeral uh, that bookend the the story and it brings these women together. But largely she spends the chapters in between exploring these women. Now they interact a little bit, some of them, you know, one is gone, one's in Europe for the entire novel. Essentially, Um, one like some characters we don't hear from for chapters and chapters at a time, so it allows her to spend a little time with each of these. We don't get a lot of time with each of these women, so it's if there's a complaint, maybe it's that we don't maybe spend as much time with some of these women as we would like to because some of them are very interesting characters and and their stories are sometimes sometimes they disappear, right? There's characters that vanish. but yeah, that's that's the way it's addressed. So we, we got about two chapters, roughly on average. I've been pay, I was paying attention. I was taking notes. It's, we got a bookend and then we got about two chapters with each of these women and some overlap. So some are present in three or more chapters. But by and large, it's, it's about two or one with each of these women. And I think it works. It doesn't have an overarching plot. It's kind of like the it's actually got less of a plot, I think, than the company she keeps. It's it's basically book-ended, connected narratives uh, about the challenges that these women face. The, the plot really is these women graduated in 1933 from passed her college. They're all educated. They're all essentially career women. One, one marries and just um, has kids, and that's her struggle. But the rest are out there. One is rich and doesn't really have to work. But pretty much they're all out there in the world, engaged in... You know some are in very political jobs some are in publishing some are more working-class jobs so there's a diversity of careers that they pursue but they're all in that they're all professional essentially women they're all educated and they all except one Mary so they have some commonalities in their experiences but they kind of have different struggles and I think that's this structure works for her just saying that these women aren't going to all have the same struggles they're they're you know, based on their background, their class background, the choices they make into who they marry, the men they marry, how it affects their life. We see them facing different, different crises. A very, very great novel. Uh, Just my overall review is a very, very high recommendation, even more so than the other Mary McCarthy novels. I think this is really, really a a striking novel. I, I like its politics. I like its, its unabashed, Political message at a time when America was becoming increasingly politicized. Right, it's very much a '60s novel in that sense that it's it's dealing with social issues directly. So, anyways, um, how to go about this? I should I introduce all these women at once? Yeah, maybe I'll just say a little bit about them because the first ch- chapter it's actually a little bit hard to get into. That's maybe my own critique is we the novel opens up with this wedding. Kay Leland Strong gets married, and and she kind of We think she's the main character, and in many ways she is the main character because her wedding and her funeral bookend the novel. And the most tragic experience in many ways is is Kay's. Not only does she die, she's institutionalized, she's brutalized by her husband, who is an adulterer, um, cruel, basically her adulterous, abusive husband plots with his lover to get Kay institutionalized at the end of the novel. And that leads directly to her death and and the funeral, which is the capstone event. But she's gone for much of the novel. If, if, you know, The middle chapters basically don't have K at all. She's introduced in the beginning and she shows up at the end again. But the whole middle, she's, she's gone from it. So she doesn't really work as a main protagonist of the novel. The protagonist is the group, right? It's this group of faster graduates who all go in different directions. Um, So chapter one's a bit hard to get into because you're introduced to all these women. There's eight of them. There's actually a ninth named Noreen who's not really part of the group, but she's an important character in that she has an affair with one of their husbands. She's also a Vassar graduate from that year, um, but she's not like in the peer group so much, but they know her and they communicate with her and talk to her. So she's kind of floating around this this story um, kind of as almost like a villain in a way, although, Many of the villains in this story really are the men, to be to be blunt. Uh, not that this is a man-hating novel. There are decent men here, and but they're men of their culture. They're men of their time. They're men with certain prejudices. Even the radical leftist men are very much men of their time. And, and there is this critique in the novel, to be sure, of, of men who are radical on class issues. They may be communists, socialists, Trotskyites, whatever, but don't really see equality for women. And this was a common theme in 60s movements, right? If you've, there's a great book, and I forgot who wrote it, I'm sorry, uh, about Freedom Summer. I read it years and years ago, which of course the civil rights uh, era voting drive, mostly by Northern liberals and college students who went to the South to organize voters. I think that was in 1963, actually. And this is actually key in the feminist movement because many of these women found that their role in Freedom Summer wasn't equal to the male leaders. And often they, seen, they felt that they were around just to be sexual partners for these male leaders or the male activists, or they were given shitty jobs. They were given they were you know, mistreated in some ways. they not respected. Not you know, it's the same way how feminists in the abolitionist movement felt they weren't treated as equals, and they felt betrayed by the Fifteenth Amendment, which expanded voting rights to black people but not to women. Not, you know, exclusively you know, like directly excluding women from, from the vote, which is something the original constitution didn't quite do, it kind of left it open who could vote. But the first time you had clear voting rights established in the constitution, in the 15th Amendment it excluded women. And that was something some of the, a lot of women activists and women abolitionists were pissed off about, and that led them to, to the Shuffworth's movement after the Civil War. People like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were part of that group, right? Who were, uh, you know, there's a kind of that break in the feminist movement, between those who supported the 15th Amendment and those who thought it was a betrayal of women's contributions. So it's kind of a very similar pattern where women felt neglected within social movements that are part of which weren't explicitly feminist to begin with, but, you know, led to their consciousness as, as women, as kind of somewhat oppressed women. In the year, in the in, you know, through that struggle, and that, that's certainly her some her critique here of the left. So, anyways, um, yeah, let's look at chapter one and briefly introduce these women. We're going to get to know them as they become prominent members of the story, of course. Okay, so as the the novel opens, we're introduced to Kay Leland Strong, who is marrying this man Harold Peterson. Their marriage is taken in New York. It's after their graduation, and it's. It's again it's a way for them to introduce this gang, this group. The group, not the gang, but you know, the group. The protagonist of the story in many ways. Uh now Harold works in theaters and he's kind of like a producer of theaters, and he's not a very he doesn't have like a really study job. He he kind of goes here and there. He's kind of a, a wanderer, a bit of a not a serious career man. Not you know, but he's an intellectual and he's you know, theater is kind of big at the time. Um, Kay is kind of cynical about love, and she sort of sees love as an illusion, and, and this is talked about a little bit in her, you know, when she we, we get some background on why she chose to marry and things. Now, she works at Macy's, and because of their careers, and because of their, basically, I think it's of they're kind of tight kind of for money, they don't have a honeymoon, right? Now, we there's a lot of details here about about the wedding itself, but mostly this chapter is introducing these, these women. Um, so let's go through them a bit. Um, the first, well, not, not the, the first thing I'm gonna talk about besides for Kay is, is Dottie Renford, because she's kind of a prominent, she's like the first character we really get to know quite well in, in the novel in the first few chapters. Uh, she's like a welfare worker. That's her career path. They all have slightly different career. Cl- they all actually have very different career paths, which is I think a, an important element of this. That, it, what, however united this group is, they're all very, very different and distinct, distinct um, characters. There is something here for for many different women to to find appealing about these characters. There is something. You know, by choosing eight, it, it's a bit a lot, it's quite a lot, and it means we don't get to spend a lot of time with them, but that diversity, I think, helps with the story. She's a virgin at the time of the wedding, and she she basically uses the wedding to to lose her virginity for um and I'm gonna talk a little bit about that when we look at the various chapters. But her struggle, her biggest struggle is about access to birth control and and marriage for love or marriage for for kind of what her family expects, or kind of the best marriage, or the socially most opportune marriage. But um, she's the character that lets us really talk about the debate over birth control. Um, it's it's what inspired me to pick the opening song for this series. Although set in the 1930s, you know the pill wasn't available to women at the time. I don't think it was developed yet. That song was written, I think, in the 1960s or 70s, uh, which kind of popularized the the pill. But it's still, I think thematically it, it, it fits and it's, it's kind of close to the time that these novels were written. Um, the three novels in this volume. Uh, so it's, you know, sexual freedom is dealt with and, and contraception and and like the relationship between men and women and contraception and class issues. It's really interestingly dealt with here in, in Dottie Renford's story. Um, of course, K, K Strong, we've already met, um, she's the main driver of this event. She's the one getting married. Um, Pokey, next woman, Pokey Mary Prothero is her name. She's super, super rich. So this novel is set in the depths of the Great Depression, right? They're graduating in the 33. So it's May 33. So Roosevelt just got elected, right? He, or he got elected in 32, but he takes office in March. So if they're just graduating, they're coming into the world right at the beginning of the New Deal. And thats I think that's another reason she picked this. Mary McCarthy picked this, of course, because this is her year to graduate. This is her generation. But I think plot-wise it works, certainly. Um, she's kind of a, she's, she's not really so career-driven. She's more of a, uh, a social um, woman. Uh, you know, she's very institutional. She's kind of, she, she went to, she had sororities and things like that. Um, She's going to continue to go on to school after this. So she's on her path to graduate school because her parents can afford it. They're they're super rich. They have this really interesting Butler character who's kind of, we'll talk about later on. I think he's kind of a fascinating uh, side character uh, a marginal character in the story. Um, But but she's the only one in the group that really is financially, doesn't have anything to really worry about. a lot of these women are facing the, just the pressure of the Great Depression, right? How do you find employment at this, uh, at this time when you, you know, as not a man? I mean, men, is kind of like the first, the last hired, first fired, the same f- pressures that African-American workers faced, a lot of women workers faced. And so they're kind of entering into a flooded marketplace uh, before the New Deal is really kicked in, uh, although some are going to get jobs in the, in the New Deal. Um, another woman is Eleanor Eastlake, or just called Lakey. She's from Illinois. Um, she, we don't actually see much of throughout the whole novel. She just sort of shows up in the beginning and the end. Um, she's she, she's like the lesbian character, and, and she's kind of the least developed. I have finished the novel, by the way. Um, know, I'm just talking about the first 100 pages or so of this 300-page novel. you know, She doesn't spend much time in the story. So she's absent. She's actually in Europe, it comes back sort of with a lesbian lover. But uh, I, you know, I kind of wish we could have gotten a little bit more into that aspect of, of the sexual politics of the novel. I mean, there's plenty to work with as there is, but um, the lesbian issue isn't highlighted here as much as it, should, it could have been, because it's certainly a, an important part of the sexual revolution of the 60s, right? Oh, I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll write it down to make sure we come back to this. Um, so I do want to talk about the sexual revolution and how the timing of this novel is relevant for that. Okay, the next one, uh, Helena Davidson. She um, She's kind of an artistic character. She did the job teaching art, essentially. Um, she's she's a, a little bit more of an asexual character, actually, and a little bit more moralistic, it seems to me. Um, one of her big roles here is that she's the one who who sees that Kay's husband is having an affair and she witnesses that and she spends a lot of time actually talking with this woman that Harold is having this affair with and and their conversations are actually interesting about the politics and, and to what degree does sexual freedom you know and how does it relate with marriage right you know freedom to marriage is, to marry is one thing but does that imply like sexual commitment um, and monogamy, right? And Noreen through her conversations with Helena talks about that. Now, I don't think Helena ever fully is convinced by this, but, but I think she's our window into Noreen in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, she, she, she ends up kind of becoming an artist of, of sorts and moving into um, that, that career. Uh, next, Pris, Pris Hearthstone, uh, she's the New Dealer in the group, she takes a job, a big supporter of FDR, you know, remember, they're graduating right when FDR just took office and she ends up getting a job with the NRA, which was uh, one of the less successful New Deal programs, you know, but kind of the first wave New Deal programs, if you studied your New Deal history, there was like the, the effort that was more of a compromise with capitalism early on. And then when that didn't work to, to resolve the depression, things like programs like the NRA, then you see the shift to the Wagner Act, Social Security Act, the WPA, you know, I will not say radical, Communists wouldn't have called them radical programs, but certainly going much farther than, than he initially wanted to. Um, she, her character is our, our main window into kind of like motherhood. She has a kid pretty early in the story. And there's a real lot of interesting politics here about breastfeeding. And I think that's her big issue is, is the right to or the duty to breastfeed. You know, because at this time, I didn't even know this, that breastfeeding wasn't that popular in the 30s. More people are using formula. Her husband wants her to breastfeed, but it's very troublesome for her. It's kind of an extra burden put on her by her husband to breastfeed. And she has a lot of trouble nursing her kid, she has to go to the doctor and the doctor's like, why don't you use the formula? But the husband wants her to. So there's this kind of family pressure to, by the husband to, to do this progressive thing. And I think that's something a lot of women face today, like this, you know, attachment parenting or breastfeeding or cloth diapers, you know, like we did cloth diapers with, with our kid, you know, but at the time, I don't know if I, I, I didn't see it as a burden, but I can think now how, some of these pressures to be ecological or to be progressive or to breastfeed. For some women, it's, you know, it's a choice, right? There's no right or wrong way to, to feed one's child, right? That's the solution to this. It, it's a choice, but that's not a choice for, for Pris. Pris is basically being pushed into the worst um, possible way of taking care of her kid. And it's, you know, it is it is what it is, but it's... It's rather a tragic story in her case. Just, the, just the, the, the double shift, right? Work and, and and children. I think she's the first to have a child, um, or the only one we really meet that that, that that their child is a major plot point in the story. Um, next, Polly. No, let's let's do Libby first because we actually meet her first in, in more detail. Libby McAusland is uh, a graduate who st- studied English and Italian, and she wants to become a publisher. And her big challenge is gonna be equality in the workplace. And she gets a job with a radical publisher, uh, a guy named Gus Leroy. He's a communist, a Stalinist, yet he, he doesn't see women as, as, as equals. Now actually this guy, Gus Leroy, had, plays a major role in two characters' lives. So I'll jump to the second woman, uh, Polly Andrew. She's, she, I think she has the best story, it seems to me. I, I liked her story the most. She ends up having this affair with Gus Leroy. Um, and, and that doesn't quite work out because Gus Leroy is, is kind of got psychological problems, and her dad had psychological problems, and it's, it's just an interesting back and forth about that. But eventually that affair falls apart. And Libby's kind of connected to the story through, through Gus Leroy. But what happens is her father, who's essentially got manic depressive, I don't know if it's right. Yeah, I think it actually is stated in the text that it's a recently kind of identified disorder at the time before it was called something else. Um, But her father has to kind of like live with her because her mother kicks out her father and they're getting divorced. And so he has to live with her and that's an extra pressure on her and they end up not being able to find ways to make ends meet. And there's a lot, you know, she's more working class. Their family was hurt by the depression, they didn't have much money. Her father becomes a radical communist. There's a lot of communists in her circle, in her building. And he becomes a Trotskyite and, and, and basically he's not really able, he, he's actually burdened on her because he's a manic depressive and it's like spends all the, all the money. And it's just how family, I think the theme here in part is how family can be a burden, right? We never chose who our family was, right? And and family can st- – there's a, like – it's almost like a meta issue here is how the values of the old generation continue to be a burden on the young. That's certainly something that people in the 60s dealt with, right? If you've watched that movie, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, there's this great scene where Sidney Poitier confronts his father and says, we will never be free until you get off our back. And what he means there is like your values aren't our values and you owe us a life. We don't owe you Commitment to your way of life and you're, you know, we don't owe you anything essentially. It's the argument and I I think it's true I think children don't owe their parents anything because children didn't choose to be here, you know entirely the the parents choice to have them so Yeah, I, I think that like I am in like people where I live in China all think you owe your parents so much. You owe them loyalty and you follow their orders and you owe them care and old life. And that's a cultural thing. But I, I just think it's morally wrong. I, I don't see how the logic pans out because it, it's totally a, you didn't, you didn't sign up for it. So she faces this pressure and it's very direct in the novel because it's a financial burden and a psychological burden on her to have her Father just show up one day and say, I got to live with you because mom kicked me out. Um, Polly eventually has to marry then basically for money. And it's, it's quite sad. Um, so is that all of them? Uh, yeah, I think that's all eight of them. Um, Noreen is, is, is the other major character, but that's it. That's, that's the eight uh, members of the group. Um, and we're still in chapter one. We meet all these people in chapter one. We get the overall description of the group. Uh, a lot of them are fearing the, the conventional, being conventional. They're, they're coming out of Vassar, they've just been, they just graduated, they're, they got the world by the tail, kind of, they're optimistic. But, you know, they, they, they fear being conventional. This is something we saw in a lot of Mary McCarthy's novels is this idea of being a liberal, being a progressive, being out there in the front of things and not falling for the conventional trap of marriage, children, and which of course many of them do and have to. Some of them have to marry because there's not much choice. Um, now at this wedding, Dottie meets Dick Brown, who she basically targets as the man who is going to take away her virginity and Dottie's virginity is discussed here. We get a lot of here on, on New Deal economics as well and it's kind of some fascinating stuff, uh, especially in the context of pokey. Um, who is super rich, and she's kind of the odd one out here because she's, you know, at a, at a time when America was kind of turning its back on the rich and the robber baron lifestyle and, and worldview at the you know right at the New Deal right right at that the the that radical phase in American politics in the '30s, you know she's kind of the of the old school. You know, we don't see much. I would like to actually have seen a little bit more of pokey and how she thought about these things. But um, There's actually a discussion here about the impact of the New Deal on the rich. Um, quote, great wealth was a frightening handicap. It insulated you from living. The Depression, whatever else you could say about it, had been a truly wonderful thing for the property classes. It had waked a lot of them up to the things that really counted. There wasn't a family prisoner that wasn't happier or insane or for having to scale down its expenditures. Sacrifices that had drawn the members together. Look at Polly Andrews' family, and then she—they were really hurt by the, the depression. It seems this is kind of a classist argument, actually. This idea that oh, we, I mean, when rich people economize, it's like you know they need a few fewer yachts, a few less yachts or something, right? It's when poor people economize, it's like food or medicine kind of thing. And that's not an equal position. And for someone who's more well off to look at the poor and say, oh, everyone's better off if they live simpler lives. Well. When you're poor or the working poor, living a simpler life might mean it's not like, you, know, you you have a few fewer servants or something. It's like, you know, we have to move into a smaller apartment or, you know, take on extra work or, or something like that. It's it's a very different standard. And that's a very elitist um, view. And I, I think that's, you know, when you see how wealthy the Pro Thor, I I think they buy her a she has like a private jet, a, not a private jet, a private plane, it wouldn't have been a jet those days, but a private plane, so she can, get, so she can commute to college. It's, it's, it's kind of grotesque how well they are. But anyways, chapter one's our introduction to the group. Now I pr- wanted to say something about the sexual revolution and its significance. Um, when I think about the sexual revolution of the 60s, I, I think of Helen Gurley Brown's Sex in a Single Girl, or I think about the Kinsey Reports as kind of touchstone texts. And I think they kind of go together, although the Kinsey reports were much earlier. I think the Kinsey reports were like in the 40s, right? And Sex and the Single Girl was early 60s. But both were confessionals. And that's something, of course, Mary McCarthy is interested in. We saw it in in the company she keeps. But both are confessional texts. Now, Sex and the Single Girl is important because it is a woman who lost her virginity at a young age, had a lot of lovers, being honest and just you know, celebrating her own life, not being shameful, it's not a morality tale. It's like, this is what I did. And I'm, I don't even wanna say proud, it's Just this is what I did. And now since that, there's been a lot of these sexual confessional novels that, that have that characteristic of just being honest about who they are. And I think that's a radical thing in a way. And I, and I think a lot of what the sexual revolution was, was not that people were doing things they weren't doing before it's that they were being honest about that, right? It's not like like college students were always having sex, but what happened in the sexual revolution was college students stood up and said, we have a right to have access to birth control on campus. So the Austin group, I think the Austin students group for sexual freedom was one major group that was pushing for contraception on campus. Not because they wanted to do something they weren't already doing. It's just, they wanted that right to be sexually active, to be recognized by the campus, right? And I think Kellan Gurley-Brown was, was important in that. And I think the Kinsey reports were too, because you know what Kinsey did was essentially ask people, what have you done? And ask it in a scientific way. And he, his achievement, whatever you want to say about his goals or what he was involved with, I know there's a lot of controversy about Kinsey, but what he did is he got people to confess their sexual histories. And then that allowed him then to report on that. And what he found was people were engaged in all sorts of sexuality outside of marriage. And that that's thats what the Kinsey Report showed. You know, he had a book about the men and the book about the women, and they showed the same thing, essentially that people were engaged in a lot of sexuality outside of marriage. Premarital sex, extramarital affairs, right? Sex with prostitutes, whatever it would be, right? It's confessional at the end of the day, right? And what I like about this book in a way is it's not set in the 60s. It's not saying, oh, we're sexually liberated women of the sexual revolution and we're we're gonna do all these things. We got the pill. No, these are, they don't have the pill, right? It actually, birth control is a big concern of some of these women. It's set in the 30s. So it's, in a sense, it's saying there's nothing new here. Hel- you know, Helen Gurley Brown, I think she was already in her like 30s or 40s when she wrote that book. She, she-, she talked about things she was doing back in the 30s and 40s. It's, you know, that is, I think, you know, the sexual revolution is here, even though it's set in the 30s. It, it didn't have to be set in the 60s to be about that because Mary McCarthy is saying, we were doing these things in our youth. And, and, we're, and, and what's going on now, what young people are doing now and what's being advertised and, and proclaimed and, and being talked about in books like the, the what is it, the, the Art of Sex or whatever who is it was, who, who wrote that book? You know, anyways, just the popular discussion about sexuality and and the legal barriers being broken down, the right to have access to the pill, the the right, um, the the gay liberation movement, all these things were coming after decades of people doing these stuff but being more silent about it, All right, Or talking personally about it, right? These women talk about sex amongst themselves, so it's that's my feeling. Why this is why this is a novel, the sexual revolution, even though it's not set. In the, in the 60s and in the, in the 70s. All right, um, I've already got 40 minutes and I've only talked about the first chapter. So let me quickly just talk about the other, some of the other issues in the first five chapters of this book and uh, maybe I'll just have to push some of the conversation of the next chapter. It took me so long just to lay out what I think the importance of this book is. Anyways, chapter two. Chapter two is mostly about Dottie's, um beginning Losing her virginity to this guy, Dick Brown. Um, she is, you know, she's kind of picked him out as a good guy and she sort of falls, in, she falls in love with him, right? Because um, it's, it's not the only time they, they have sex, but it is basically on that that wedding night, Kitty's wedding night, it's, it's, she picks him. He's very kind, he's a good guy. I mean, there's, he's, he's not a bad guy in any, you know, compared to some of the other men, it's novel hes he's one of the better ones. Um, she does have fear of pregnancies and she talks about it so her story is going to be about access to birth control and to a lesser degree marriage for love versus marriage for need or social convention and a couple of these women marry you know essentially because they have to marry this person so what does it mean to have the freedom to choose who you marry when you don't have the social freedom to choose who you can marry. I guess that's kind of what Mary McCutter is saying here. Um, he he comes he comes on her. He doesn't come inside her. So he uses coitus interruptus. But he does talk to her and says like, we need to if we're going to keep doing this, you're going to have to have birth control, right? And, and it's a conversation in a later chapter about the class and the politics of all this. Um, but another thing they talk about after they they make love is is kind of the the right to sexual pleasure, which is which is key because. He says to her, "Like you, you, you came, you orgasmed, and I think she's a little bit. She doesn't. Really, she's a virgin, so it's not entirely clear to her. It seems, but um, they they talk pretty openly about the right of women to experience sexual pleasure, and he feels it's part of men's duty to provide that, which is great. I think um, a good conversation to have, right? Because I think that's part of the sexual revolution too. Um, is you know the right to not the right to get laid right not the right to have sex that certainly doesn't exist but the right to to have a fulfilling sex life if it's possible right and then that, that involves doctors that involves physicians talking about impotence that involves doctors prescribing birth control to women who want to have access to it it's it's all those things right and it's it's about the relationship between men and women right women aren't there just to be the for the pleasure of men um, Things we take for granted now, hopefully, maybe not everyone, certainly not the case here, I think, in China, where I am, but, um, you know, a lot of things we take for granted, like you you can go to the doctor and get pills that cure your erectile dysfunction. That's super new, not only the the technology, but before the 70s, doctors didn't think it was worthwhile to deal with that. You know, you just get old, right? And, And you lose that part of your life, right? The reason older, people can have fulfilling sex lives is because doctors now think it's a worthwhile use of resources to ensure that. That is an important achievement of the sexual revolution, right? It's talked about in this novel through, you know, the conversation with doctors here is really key for several characters actually. Um, But anyways, that's chapter Chapter two is mostly this this trist, this initial trist between the two. Chapter three um, is, a connection to that is like the next It's it's, they have a a breakfast and that's when actually this is the time he he says you need if we're going to keep doing this You need to get birth control, right? He also has a philosophy of affairs that he gives to her um, Which is kind of interesting. There's like class issues played with here like um, And later on when she seeks out birth control This is carried on with some of the other people she talks to like this idea that rich men or middle-class people middle-class women are expected to take care of the birth control themselves, but working-class men who sleep around buy the condoms, right? So birth control is for them. And this seemed to be a class, it's presented as a class issue very directly, that working-class men bring condoms to their trysts, but middle-class women, you know, should seek out their own birth control. It shouldn't be paid for by the men. It's kind of a weird thing, I think. It's, it's kind of oddly... Presented, and it, maybe it's true, maybe it's an accurate description of how things were in the 30s. I see no reason not to not to believe that. But um, at the same time, when Kay and Dottie have a conversation about that, and Kay's in the story at this time, when she's still happily married to Harold, they have a discussion of birth control, and Harold's very open about it. It's it's kind of Harold's presented here as kind of an open, progressive kind of guy, openly talking about birth control with Kay and Dottie. Um, in fact, they think him asking Dottie to get birth control is a sign of David's commitment to her, right? He wouldn't ask her if he wasn't interested in seeing her again, right? But the class stuff with birth control is what really struck me. Um, okay, I'll just read it. Maybe you can Maybe you can get a sense of it better if I just read it. Um, all right, that was Harold's verdict too. Riding on the top of the Fifth Avenue bus on the way to the doctor's office, Kay repeated to Daddy what Harold had said of the etiquette of contraception, which as he explained it was like any other etiquette. The code of manners rising out of social realities. You were to look at it in terms of economics. No man of honor, which Dick and Harold's opinion was, would expect a girl to put up the doctor's fee plus the price of the pessary and the jelly and the douche bag unless he planned to sleep with her long enough for her to recover her investment. Of that, Dotty could rest assured a man out for casual affairs found it simpler to buy Trojan by the dozen, even though it decreased his own pleasure. That way, He was not tied to the girl. The lower classes, for instance, almost never transferred the burden of contraception to the woman. This was a discovery of the middle class. A working man was either indifferent to the dangers of conception, or he mistrusted the girl too much to leave the matter to her hands. This mistrust, Harold said, was was deep in the male nature, made even middle class and professional men wary of sending a girl for a pessary. Pessary, that's like a diaphragm, I think. Some kind of, she's getting fitted for something. So it's like a plug or a diaphragm or something. Anyways, fascinating stuff, I think. Um, Yeah, who controls birth control? The stigma of it. Um, Now there is some, Mary's, Mary McCarthy is so great here because she even connects the whole discussion of birth control to issues of eugenics, issues of Malthusian thinking, all of which were there in the early 20th century, right? Of course, the peak of Neo-Malthusian thinking may have been Paul *The Population bottom, in 1962, but the whole world is kind of engaged in this conversation of, of you know, growing population and what's the impact of that gonna be? And we see the rise of eugenics. Eugenics had its heyday in the early 20th century, of course. And of course, Margaret Sanger famously was interested in eugenical thinking, even as she was promoting access to birth control for women. So she gets into this conversation as well. We're 50 pages of the novel and we're already Deeply into the politics of birth control, eugenics, Malthus, class, gender relations, the New Deal, all this stuff. It's such a rich, such a great novel, really uh, wonderful. Um, They even talk about New Deal politics and technocracy, which is something I'm I'm working on Lovecraft, his letters. He was obsessed with this issue. Uh, Lovecraft, as much as he was a conservative, kind of liked aspects of the New Deal because he was advocating kind of a technocratic solution to social problems. And he thought that's kind of the best way to solve these problems from kind of the top down framework. And that's discussed here too. Uh, urban renewal and class, birth control class, all these things come through in this chapter. Really just pick up this chapter, chapter three of the group and read it for a great uh, wild ride through the politics of birth control. Um, yeah, and then one last thing about this chapter, just the importance of medicine in giving freedom of sexual expression and and sexual freedom to women. You know, if you can't go to a doctor as a single woman, as a married woman, as uh, even a minor and get a doctor to say, here's your birth control, whatever form you might want to take it in, you know, sexual freedom is limited, right? Then we're, we're back to if without, without that, we're back to shotgun weddings and, if you read those court records or those church records from New England, right? You see all those couples. Mary and March have their first kid in, you know, June or July. Very, very common And you read those church records. You know, where basically you end up having to marry the first person who gets you pregnant, right? That, that freedom to choose your, your spouse is, doesn't exist without sexual freedom, right? Without access to birth control, it seems to me, right? Now, you know, I don't know, debate me, put your own thoughts there. Tell me what you think about this, but it seems to me without a woman being able to go to a doctor, go to a store and get birth control, you know, sexual freedom is always gonna be limited. Great, great chapter, beautiful chapter, wonderful. Um, I'll, I'll be quick about the next two chapters, I guess, just two, because I think the juice, the best stuff is in chapters one through three. Um, chapter four kind of focuses on Harold and Kay's relationship. Um, Harold loses his job, at, which is basically producing theater, and he, you know, it's kind of and so more of the burden of the family is on Kay. So she's being pressured by by that, and we actually see the how this increased work life has a relation on on Kay's sex life. Quote. She thought about that actor's equity ought to do something about rehearsal hours, which Press Hartstone agreed were absolute medieval and would, have to be tolerated, would not be tolerated in a substandard factory. She and Harold had hardly had intercourse since he got this job. How could they? The company did not break at night till one or two in the morning, and by the time she was asleep, when she left for work the next morning, Harold was still snoozing. One night, he did not get home till four after a conference in the producer's office, quote. We find out later he's having affairs, but. Of course, he gets a new job, but that job isn't as good, and the job is a, lot, is a lot more burdensome of the time, and that kind of shuts down their sex life. So again, you know, how important is it to have leisure time to have a fulfilling sex life? Mary McCarthy is very honest about that in this, this chapter. Um, but what we see in chapter four, what's revealed in chapter four, as much as you might have liked Harold and thought Harold was kind of a chill guy and pretty open-minded in chapter three, in chapter four we learn he is abusive, He's violent towards Kay, and he's emotionally, he emotionally batters Kay. Um, and that's clear by the end of Chapter 4 that that's the situation. Now, we kind of say goodbye to them for the, much of the middle third of the novel, but in the final act of the story, this comes back, and it's the big tragedy of the novel is Kay, although all these women have tragedies of various sorts. Um, but it's, that's the big one. Um, now, chapter five, Helena is the focus of chapter five. We kind of shift to another character. So Dottie's kind of done. Dottie's story is mostly done. I think we hear a little bit about her later on, but mostly Dottie's story, her issue is dealt with. Kay's issue is introduced and dealt with. Violence, work, the pressure of a work and, and married life, and an abusive husband. We kind of shift into another member of the group, Helena. So we get Helena's career background, basically she becomes a teacher at kind of a a progressive school. She's interested in somewhat radical politics herself, like many of these women are. Um, But she's, it's in this chapter that she sees that Harold and Noreen embrace at a party or something. And and so, although in the previous chapter, we get this image of Harold just overworked with his new job, he still has time to play around. And one reason he's coming home late it seems it's because he's he's flirting around with this other vassar girl, Noreen. So that's the big real re- revelation of chapter five. Um, now I don't really want to because I know the next chapters are going to be long as well, and the next conversation is going to be long. You know, I'm you know this is such a rich novel um, that I don't know if I can go into every chapter as much detail as I did the first, um, but. Yeah, I think I'm gonna stop now. I think I'm gonna, I think that's enough for the first third of the, the, first five chapters of the novel. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters six through, through 10, maybe come back to some of these issues that were in the previous chapters. And then in the final one, I'll look at, I'll look at the final five chapters of the story. Again, this novel is, is kind of cobbled together these different stories that are kind of woven together quite brilliantly with overlapping characters. Um, So we see here how Helena and Noreen and Kay are connected, Dottie and Kay are connected through their conversations about birth control, you know, but it's, it's, it's kind of, they're all woven together, but they all have their individual narratives. It's quite well done, I think, I think it's, this could have been a a series of short stories, right, eight short stories about women, and that could have been an interesting story, but she weaves them together, you know. It's, I was thinking like Arabian Nights kind of story where you have it's bookended, but it is woven together better than a, a structure like Arabian Nights. But anyways, I like, I love this novel. So good, so good. So um, highly, highly recommend it. But I have a lot more to say about the group and I'll do it in the next two chapters. So let me know what you think about any of these issues discussed. Uh, second wave feminism, birth control, uh, marriage, sexual freedom, you know, how important it was that women had career opportunities, the Great Depression, the politics of the Great Depression, any of these issues. If you have anything to say, if you've read the group, saw the movie, want to comment below, please, please do that. I would love to hear from you. So that, but that's going to be it for now. Uh, if you do have comments, you can leave them below on Podbean. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. That'd be great if you had the time to do that. Help me out a little with that. Or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time when I continue with by, in, by looking at the group, chapters 6 through 10. Uh, thanks for yeah, making girls. it for all those years since I've got the pill. I'm tired of all your crowing, how you and your hands play. I holding a couple in my arms and others on the way This chicken's done for a furnace.